This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case i got bored welcome everyone to another exciting wonderful episode of literary treks if i do say so myself my name is dan gunther and i'm just one of your hosts joining me as he is always is the wonderful bruce gibson bruce how are you today i'm wonderful but wait you just said that i did it's it's the feeling so nice it deserves to be said twice Oh, that's so wonderful of you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's getting kind of late where we are, so I feel like we're getting a little loopy at this point, but uh, it should make for a fun episode, I think. Uh, We're going to be talking a little later about the Voyager novel, The Farther Shore. This is part two of the Homecoming uh, duology featuring Voyager's return to Earth from the Delta Quadrant after the end of the Star Trek Voyager series. We covered the first book, Homecoming, last week with Brandy Jackala. And joining us again this week is Brandy to talk about book two. So that's pretty exciting. Uh, but before we do that, we do have a comic to cover this week, also book two. Uh, this one is Terra Incognita. Uh, issue number two you might remember we covered the first issue a few episodes ago and in that one we had the mirror universe barkley uh, remain behind following the previous star trek the next generation comic adventure he's bound and gagged barkley in his quarters and taken his place and uh, now we've got part two of that story in which picard and the enterprise take over a diplomatic mission from Captain DeSoto and the USS Hood, uh, negotiating a new peace treaty with the Cardassians, uh, with some Vulcan ambassadors they have on board. So first impressions, Bruce, what did you think of this issue? One thing I found interesting about this issue is it felt like a standalone. It didn't feel like it was a part two of a story to me. Um, Mm -hmm. because with the thing with mere, Barkley being in issue one, I'm expecting there to be a continuing play of that in issue two, but there's just really one brief scene with Barkley and the rest of this is about Picard 
uh, and Troy dealing with a diplomatic mission with the Vulcans and the Cardassians. And it really is a complete story in of itself. So it's, it's a good story and I've enjoyed it, but uh, it did not feel like it was uh, part of the Barkley arc. Yeah, I think I was really expecting that to be the focus of this entire miniseries going forward. Um, instead, I feel like we're kind of getting pieces put in place for this larger situation that's going on. And like you said, yeah, we've got this uh, shuttle crash incident uh, with the Vulcans and dealing with the Cardassian uh, negotiations and stuff. And it feels like an episode of TNG kind of thing. Uh, very much self-contained, uh, but with this Barkley element kind of hovering over it, because like you say, we do get that one scene where Troy and the Vulcan ambassadors are preparing to leave the ship in a shuttlecraft, and Barkley has uh, done the pre-launch stuff, I guess. He's speaking a lot more confidently than Barkley normally does, and uh, he says something that really gives Picard and Troy pause. He says, personally, I wouldn't want to be anywhere near a filthy Cardassian without my handy phaser. And Picard and Troy are pretty shocked. And Barkley says, ah, that's just a little joke. Anyway, you're all set to go. So that's all we get from Mirror Barkley this time around. Yeah, it's one page, one page of Barkley in this issue. So if anything, what this told me is this series is not about Mirror Barkley. Not to say that he's not going to play a big part in the later issues, but this really is a TNG story and Mir Barkley is going to have some kind of play in it. So it's not a Mir Barkley or a Mir Universe story. It's strictly the next generation. And uh, yeah, so like you say, we've got this story going forward. We've got, uh, they're taking the Cardassian negotiators and the Vulcan negotiators in a shuttlecraft, which uh, I guess the shuttle pilot briefly forgets she's in the next generation and thinks she's in Voyager and crashes the shuttle. So <laughs> we've got the shuttle crash situation and they have to survive. There's a couple injuries. Well, and... Troy's on board. So I figure that's how Troy learned how to crash a ship. Oh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> but I, I do have to say, actually, Troy puts in a really good showing in this and leads them to the outpost to safety. And, you know, along the way, there's these strange plant creature things that attack them. I really I really got into this story. I really was interested in it and what was going on. Um, it's not what I expected, because like I think we've said, we expected it to be that Barkley story. But I don't know. For what it is, I'm really into it, and I'm really into this series. I think it's been pretty good so far, and this is a really interesting issue. I like the Cardassian that's on the shuttlecraft that is basically needling Troy and the Vulcans constantly, to the point that it's almost comedic to me. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's like... I just feel like if they were cooking her dinner, she'd be like, oh, great. What are you doing now? Cooking something that humans like that Cardassians don't, you know, like it's oh, she's making comments throughout just like that. you know. And I really like the turn that her character takes, too, because she's initially really um, critical of the shuttle pilot saying she's just a kid. And does she have any experience? And sure enough, she crashes. But at the same time, her piloting expertise allows them to survive the crash. And when her subordinate 
starts bad-mouthing the pilot, she cuts him off saying, hey, that kid is why you're alive. You know, watch your mouth kind of thing, which I really appreciated. I liked that we kind of got that that bit of a turn of her character there and her and Troy kind of respecting each other by the end of the story, too, I thought was really good. Yeah. And anytime a Cardassian says, well, I'll be damned, just is an interesting <laughs> character. <laughs> Definitely. I'm hoping that she's uh, in the next issue as well, because this, yeah, this Cardassian negotiator, I think it's a really cool character. I want to see more of her. Yeah, I do too. I, I love seeing the Cardassians in this. Um, just feel like I haven't, seen the Cardassians a whole lot with TNG as much, of course, as we see with uh, Deep Space Nine. So it's it's nice to see Cardassians in this storyline, but knowing that Mir Barkley is part of this, we're converging something from the Mir universe with Cardassians. So I'm curious to see how that plays out. Well, yeah, um, I think I'd have to give this one um, top marks for me. I really enjoyed it. Uh, again, it's kind of one of those middle stories of a miniseries. So, you know, we, like you said, it's a bit of a self-contained story, but still setting things up for, uh, future issues. So we'll kind of have to wait and see how this all plays out, but I really enjoyed this one. Yep. Me too. So, uh, we should see issue number three in about a month. Awesome. Looking forward to that. Uh, speaking of looking forward, what do you say we jump to the feature and welcome Brandy to talk about the farther shore? Oh, yes. Let's do that, because I have a feeling this one's going to be very interesting. I have a similar feeling. I'm curious to see what you mean by that. I'm a little scared now, but uh, yeah, let's see. Don't worry. Just buckle in. You'll be fine. Well, today in our feature, we're talking about part two of an epic Voyager story chronicling their return to the Alpha Quadrant. This is The Farther Shore by Christy Golden. And joining us as she did last week is the wonderful Brandy Jackala. Brandy, how's it going? Oh, it's going fine for better or worse. Here I am. There may be listeners going, no, no, but no, I'm back. You can't stop me. They're like her again? Actually, I get that a lot. Uh, it's okay. Doesn't, Aww, doesn't no. hurt me. If, okay. If any of our listeners are saying that, let me know because I want to have a word with them because we Ooh, love you love on you this show. Too. And I can't imagine <laughs> so our listeners would feel any different. I know. I think our listeners probably tune in and go, it's Bruce and Dan again. Really? When are they going to replace Ugh. those guys? Those guys. No. Ugh. I love you guys. <laughs> Aw, well, we love you. It's just a big love fest. I think we should do the book now. <laughs> yeah, let's do the book. <laughs> <laughs> I think Bruce is kind of gagging a little bit there. All right. Well, we'll get into the book then. So like I said, this is part two continuing on from Homecoming, which we covered in last week's episode. And in this one, we're picking up on all of the plots that that book uh, left us with. And first off, one that kind of we talked a little bit about last week and we get more into it this week is uh, Bolana's story, which feels I don't know about you guys, but to me feels very separate from the rest of what's going on in the book. And I'm kind of curious how you guys feel about that. But this is where she's on Boreth and she's searching for her mother. She got a note from her mother saying that where she is and come find me kind of thing. So she's left Tom and her child morale to search for her mother morale uh, on Boreth, undergoing this challenge of the spirit. 
Uh, so what do you guys think of this storyline and how it's kind of fitting or not fitting in with the rest of the book? It's exactly what you said. It felt like a totally separate story from the rest of the book because the rest of the book is dealing with all these other events that we're going to talk about and it's all taking place on Earth. Well, Balan is somewhere else, totally different planet, totally different situation, has no connections to what's going on on Earth. This is like a B storyline that does not tie into anything else. And that, that's not a complaint. It's just, I mean, I guess there's maybe parallels in the fact that it's her trying to, no, I can't even say, I don't know. I don't know. It just kind of seems, yeah, it does feel a bit separate, but it, it's not it's not something we see often throughout the book. It maybe just comes up like four, maybe five times at the most throughout the book. And that doesn't even take up full chapters. I also feel like it was incongruous with the rest of the book. Not because I wasn't interested in it. That had nothing to do with it. I actually was interested in it. But I felt like it didn't fit with the rest of the story. And I think that it was in there as a way to, okay, what loose ends does Bolana have? Let's tie these off. And that's why they did this story with this book, because that's what this book is, is tying off loose ends. It's like, here's the Voyager crew, they're back, now let's wrap everything up in a nice little bow and see where we go from here. That's kind of the feeling I get overall. And this is the thing that was still a loose end for Bolana. So I feel like that's why it's in there. And again, it's not that I didn't like the story. I thought it was, uh, you know, it was interesting to me. I thought it was pretty well told. I just, uh, I just thought, why is this here? <laughs> was basically my thought. Well, that story is the type of story the other characters deserved. Yes. It, it's almost like they all needed their one-off to deal with whatever issues that they brought with them from the Delta Quadrant and then how they're dealing with family and other people on Earth. It's like, I felt like they all needed those separate stories like that. So it's great that Balana got this opportunity. Oh yeah, I agree. I'm not saying she shouldn't have had this opportunity. I just, just the way that it was kind of shoved into the rest of this novel is what bothered me. And to me, Bruce, that makes a lot of sense that like each character should have had a story like this. And it feels really weird that... Uh, okay, we've got Janeway promoted. We've got Seven and Chakotay broken up. We uh, have Harry back together with Libby and Paris is chummy with his dad again. And that's all in like the first couple chapters of the last book. But this story, we're going to stretch out over two books and really examine it. And yeah, I don't, I don't, you know, I, I'm not sad that they did that with that story because it's interesting and it deserves room to breathe. But I think everybody's story kind of deserved room to breathe. And it's weird that without any vitriol towards this story, I'm forced to ask, why this story? Why are you focusing on this one and not any of the other ones? It just seemed like an odd choice to me. As usual, the first half of this podcast will be fairly spoiler free. We'll kind of, you know, roughly touch on some of the stuff where that's going on in this novel. And then the last half we'll we'll talk a little bit more spoilery. So we won't talk about exactly how that storyline turns out yet but we'll definitely come back to that but meanwhile back on earth uh, we've got this continuing situation that we have from the first novel where there's this borg virus that's gotten loose and is slowly assimilating people and starfleet's keeping it hush hush and they also suspect voyager of having something to do with it i mean this ship spent seven years in the delta quadrant 
they were around Borg and there's two Borg, former Borg crew members. They've got to have something to do with it, right? But we do learn that they are not in fact behind it, as we of course suspected all along. We learn about, is this too early to get into the spoilers of who's behind this? Because it, it's revealed pretty early in this book, actually. I think, I was thinking about this earlier today, and I know we like to get a little further into the feature without going to spoilers, but I'm just going to say right now that because this is book two, it's almost like we're past the halfway mark in the story. So I think we have to just go ahead and say we're going to hit spoilers early on. All right. I feel better about this then because this revelation does come fairly early in this book. Who's all behind it? And uh, Brandy nailed it. She guessed absolutely correctly. Uh, Brenna Covington, the head of Starfleet Covert Intelligence, is not only behind what's going on, she wants to become a new Borg queen and create a, a separate collective on Earth. And uh, wow, um, there is a lot to unpack with this story because there's so much going on here and so many things that just kind of make me do a WTF <laughs> <laughs> because this is insane. And man, OK, where do we start? Well, she has this plot to become a new Borg queen and create her own collective. This stems supposedly from the abuse she suffered growing up, being abused physically, and it's strongly implied sexually by her stepfather. And I don't even know where to begin with this because I have a number of problems with this story. Um, I think maybe I'm just going to put it out there and let you guys give your thoughts before I start in on this. I understand well how being abused can create a monster, especially someone who's been abused since she was three years old. I understand that. I also understand the impetus to become, to want to have how do I phrase this? To want to have control over herself, but also to want to have a family that loves her unconditionally, which is something that she has never had. And when her stepfather is killed, she feels gratitude towards the Borg for doing what she could not. And so I think that that's what they're trying to show is the impetus for her wanting to do that. And I understand that's what they're trying to show, but I don't think it's a good way to go about it. I just don't think it works. I don't think it's a strong enough reason. I mean, just the abuse alone is enough of a reason, but to go, oh no, I want to be a Borg queen because the Borg killed my stepfather and finally stopped all of this massive abuse. Really? That's what we're going with. I just I just don't like the way it was done there. I'm, I'm not a writer and I can't say for sure what would have been a better way to do it. But I just feel like it's a very weak excuse or explanation for why she wants to be a board queen. I'm glad you brought that up. I, I've thought a lot about this since reading the book. And that's always a positive if I'm thinking a lot about a book. So I have very mixed feelings about this storyline. I love the idea. It's a little cheesy, but I love the idea that there are humans on Earth that are being turned into Borg because a woman is using artifacts from 
Borg technology from the events of First Contact that are found on Earth and Borgifying herself into a queen that's going to has the power to set off now all these changes through this technology that's found around Earth. If anybody's exposed to it or ever to turn them into Borg. I mean, it's just a different play on the Borg. It's not just the Borg showing up and assimilating. It's someone who is trying to become a Borg themselves and then causing others to just turn into Borg. And I thought I found that kind of interesting, a little bit cheesy, but interesting itself. So I really like that aspect of the story. The motivation just wasn't working for me because, yes, she was abused, but I never felt like there was a good bridge to explain how the abused motivated her to want to conquer Earth and turn everybody into Borg. That, unless I'm missing something, that didn't really make sense to me because I thought if anybody's abused, they don't necessarily want to take over the planet <laughs> and turn everybody into Borg. I just had an idea while you were saying that, and it's never actually put forth in the book, but one possible explanation besides wanting to be in control and be loved unconditionally is also maybe to make sure she can never be abused again. And that no one else can ever be abused again. Yes. I'm, and I started thinking that same Ugh. thing myself when I was brushing my teeth today. When I was thinking about <laughs> yes. this. I come up with thoughts when I'm brushing my teeth too. <laughs> I know. It's so great. So, yeah. Because I thought about someone that I know that always has to be in control. Because I know that they had some issues in their childhood. And so they have this. They just always want to control the situation because they don't want to be hurt. Yeah. So if they can control others then they can't hurt them, hurt her. So therefore, I was thinking that about this character, how Covington doesn't want, she wants control to prevent others, not just from hurting her, but from hurting each other. I don't feel like it was really explained the motivation, and we're here trying to figure that out. So that bothered mm -hmm. me. That's where I have mixed feelings about this storyline. Yeah. yeah, the idea that, you know, I, I don't necessarily need a book to handhold me and walk me through everything, but it almost feels like in the book there's like a shorthand that you're expected to just get. Oh, she was abused and treated horribly. That's why she's horrible now and and doing this horrible plan. And I'm not really comfortable with you know, having to make that intuitive leap. Like it feels like the book's saying something that I don't really like, you know, I, I, I don't know if maybe I'm reading too much into that, but I, I don't feel that chronicling abuse that suffered is a good enough shorthand to just then have the person be a villain, you know, like let's have some more of that explanation of what led them to that. And then the payoff as well, it, we get basically kind of one paragraph where seven of nine is inside her head and realizes, Oh, she was horribly abused and that's so tragic. And I'm so sorry for her. And that's really it. You know, it's just villain, 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 villain. Oh, a little bit of sympathy at the end and we're done with her. I would, I would have liked to see some, you know, redemption maybe, or some realization of, a leads to B leads to C or something. I don't know. Maybe I'm too wide-eyed pie in the sky, but I was just, you know, let's have a little happier ending for Brenna yeah, Covington. Well, and not only that, but <laughs> she's she's just an abused yeah, kid. Basically. And I also feel like so, yeah, sympathy because she was abused. And how about, you know, 
taking into like starting an investigation of how this could have gone on so freaking long without anyone knowing about it without because you somebody had to have noticed that something was off you always notice that when something is off you can't tell me that there's nobody in the lives of that family that could figure out that something was off and you're telling me nobody in this you know utopic future of ours noticed or said anything and if that's so well why did that happen and you get nothing about that nothing not that i'm a huge advocate of big brother and all that stuff but you'd think with how closely things are monitored on starships and stuff that the average life for a civilian in the 24th century would be you know if you're getting the crap beat out of you in your home maybe something automatically would alert authorities or a hospital or something. One would hope. This is a few hundred years from now. Like, can't we figure this crap out? <laughs> That's, yeah, it, it's, for the purposes of the story, I understand, I guess, why it had to happen. But I, it just, you know, if you start thinking of these people as real people living real lives, that can't happen. You can't have that. That's not... That's not cool. I mean, this is the problem I have with both books. It's just there's so many good ideas in there that aren't fleshed out or just quickly resolved. And it's like or missing pieces. There's just so much opportunity with the whole idea of this character, Covington, and what she went through and and why she's doing what she's doing and the results of that, that it just felt like every time I was like, ooh, this sounds good. Okay, I'm into this. Then I was always like disappointed. There's just this wah, wah, like I've never really got the resolution I wanted or the answers I wanted. It was everything was just kind of a little hollow for me. I enjoyed the whole story and the ideas. It was just always falling short for me. And even just the idea of this Trevor Blake and other characters that are behind her on this and helping her. Why did I miss something? Like, I don't even know why. Why do they want to make her into a Borg queen? I, I, I'm mm -hmm. serious. Did I miss that? I mean, <laughs> is there some reason why they wanted to do this to her and have her turn everyone on the planet into Borg? I don't mm -hmm. understand that either. Um, because maybe they were just those. Well, they were both kind of those people of, well, I've been overlooked about this and this and this and this, and I was passed over for this, and I'm going to show everybody. And for some reason, well, there is in the prologue of the book a whole passage about how Brenna had learned how to get people to tell her things they shouldn't, you know, they didn't want to tell people, and how to get them to do what she wanted them to do. And that's what she does to these other people. And these people are already you know, disgruntled and disenfranchised. And so it's very easy to make them these promises that she probably actually won't be able to keep and probably doesn't intend to keep. They're just going to be drones like everybody else. She's going to be the only one, you know, calling the shots. So she tells them what they want to hear in order to get them on her side. And then when she's done with them, Guess what? You're a drone now. Yeah, that moment where, you know, he's saying, I'll do anything to help you and protect you and I'll never leave. And she's like, you're right, you won't. And he starts turning into a Borg. I'm like, what did Duh. you expect? Like, her plan is to turn everyone on the planet into Borg, but you'll help her. 
and she won't turn you into one like uh i i you have like while these guys are are helping her in doing this i had picard's words going through my head we work to better ourselves and the rest of humanity i'm like not these jokers like what are you guys doing yeah, and if the rest of the plants borg and they're not what what are they going to be doing uh, they can't go to the grocery store. Everybody's going to be Borg walking around. I mean, they can't do anything fun. <laughs> They'd have to sit in some isolation somewhere and or, or leave the planet. Like, I don't even get it. Nothing of this, like, really starts to... The more we talk about it, the less it makes sense. Well, some things are making a little more sense, but, I mean, we have to have all these theories that we have to come up yeah, with. Yeah, but it's it doesn't make enough sense is the problem. Yeah, we can form our own theories and such, but there should have been more to it in the book. And it shouldn't have been just about petty people wanting to get ahead. It shouldn't have been about that. There should have been something more motivating this, that they were really true believers in the cause in some way. I don't know. But it's, again, like Bruce said, just hollow. It's just hollow. Which is actually a pretty good pun when we come to the next bit of the story. But but first, I want to talk just one last little thing about Brenna Covington. With the revelation in this book, I kind of, in my head, retroactively cast her as Alice Creech. Oh, yeah. As playing nice. her. And I just thought, like, if they ever, for whatever reason, made the movie of these books, like, that would be perfect. If she's just the woman who plays the Borg Queen in First Contact. And, you know, over the course of the book, she comes out of the shadows and starts to get paler and looks more like the Borg Queen. I was like, oh, I, that's kind of <laughs> cool. <laughs> Head cannon. <laughs> well, talking about the story being hollow, I like that. Uh, we come to uh, another storyline that's going on that started in the last book. And we get kind of the payoff in this one. We have a man by the name of Oliver Baines, who's kind of taken up the cause of holographic rights after having been inspired by the doc's hollow novel, Photons Be Free. And in the last book, he approached the doctor to help him with this revolution and the doctor refused. It nevertheless went forward. The doctor went, fell under suspicion and has been imprisoned by Starfleet because we're a military dictatorship, I guess, Apparently. at this point. <laughs> <laughs> right. Basically, in this book, he's using these holograms and replacing key personnel at various places. And this actually comes in handy for Janeway and her group later on in the book, conveniently mm. enough. But in the meantime, we also follow the stories of the people who have been replaced, who are being imprisoned in a holodeck. And we get kind of this extended story where they're forced to be the slaves and the um, the playthings of the holograms in the holodeck. So we get this role reversal that's just, in my opinion, really on the nose and really obvious, but we'll talk about it. What did you think about this story? And then also the twist that happens with regards to it. I kind of like this story. Uh, I think it would work really well as a short story in a book of short sto stories. Um, but it works in here too. I think what I liked about it is it seemed a little weird because it's on the holodeck and we see Oliver Baines like in a toga or something riding horses. And I don't know. There's just a lot of strange things like at first going on. But I like the whole idea of convincing uh, this character vastly that 
he's a slave and he's out doing manual labor in the hot sun and the sand and he's being treated badly just like holograms have been treated like slaves and and there's other characters around him that you think are also humans that are on board and he gets to know Allison and she's you know much younger and he thinks of her like a daughter and he becomes a father figure to her and and he always looks at her as the daughter he never had and there was a nice relationship between the two you know spoiler alert which we said we're going to go into spoilers you know she gets killed and we find out she's a hologram but he has a very angry emotion of the fact that he's been duped and that she's a hologram but she then stands up and she's well again and she's like oh but i i'm still real i'm still me and he hugs her and he gets to a point where his acceptance of her and his love for her is genuine genuine and therefore he accepts the fact that even though she's a hologram she's real to him and that's all that counts and i kind of liked that story and i liked how that played out it was very sweet and also it made a point about our holograms something that you should consider to be independent or are they just holograms? Yeah, well, I think that the answer to that question is extremely tricky because I think it also depends on the level of programming involved in the hologram. I think that there are different levels of intelligence in hologram programming. So I can't answer that question because uh, I do not have enough knowledge or experience. I, I don't have any holograms to interact with. Therefore, I can't say. I had mixed feelings about this story. I understood the point that Oliver Baines was making. It was the way that he made it that I didn't appreciate because it's taking the low road. You're taking a human being that uh, you know, doesn't know you from Adam and you're abusing and torturing this human being to show him what the holograms are going through. That is not a good way to make your point. Now you are just as bad as the people who are torturing and abusing holograms because you're doing it too. So I don't think it was worth the price he paid to make that point. Because now you're just a monster, just like the people you're fighting against. And that is the whole point of having a revolution, is to not become the monster, to overthrow the monster, and then celebrate the fact that you are free to do what you want and go about your daily life. But to go this route, and basically he's destroyed the rest of his life now, was it worth it? is my question. So I understand the point that was being made. I like the point that was being made. And I really liked Vasily. I thought he was a really cool character. And again, in, uh, like Bruce said, would have made a great sh short story in an anthology or what have you. I just felt like, when will humanity stop becoming the monster to beat the monster? Please stop doing that. This is the 24th century. Let's do better. Yeah, that's uh, that's really well said. I had a lot of those same feelings. Yeah, I... I as far as that goes, I don't know what I can add to that because that's absolutely perfect. I did also really like the character of Vasily. I <laughs> I can't shake this feeling and I'm wondering if you guys feel the same way. I was a little creeped out by the relationship between her or him and Allison. 
Am I am I wrong? No, I don't know. Because Allison was a little creeped out too at first. Yeah. And it was like the author had to keep making the point, like, oh no, 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 I don't want to date you. I feel like your father. No, 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 I don't want to date you. I, 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 I just like over and over, and I'm like, why? Ugh. I don't know why. I just got a little creeped out. Because <laughs> Christy Golden was writing so much about Allison and making comments about, you know, how beautiful she is. And from his standpoint, you know, oh, look at her and look at what she's doing. And you're like, oh, at first you think there's like some romantic feelings going on. But then all of a sudden it's like, oh, but isn't she like someone that could be, could have been my daughter? And you're like, oh. Okay, <laughs> like it just seemed to kind of switch on you all of a sudden, and then to the point that yeah. he wants to be around her, and she's like, "Oh, well, I don't think we should date." Oh, no, 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 no! It's like, yeah, you get that kind of creep feeling throughout. That is he interested or isn't he? I'm not really that sure. Yeah, and and that was it because it was told in these terms and and presented this way and. I don't know. I we see it all from Andropov's point of view, and it sounds early on like he's pretty attracted to her, and then it just to me is a little creepy. But all that aside, it, it I do like that you know the the switch is flipped at the end. That oh, you're a hologram, but I you know have all these emotions and protective feelings towards you as though you're a real person. Oh, I get it. But yeah, the fact that it has to be done through torture and, and all this stuff is just, it's really upsetting and not not the way I would have liked to see that play out. Again, like Brandy said, I'm not a writer either, so I don't know <laughs> how I would have done it differently. But yeah, it just goes down into some deep, dark areas. And at no point, I, I, I don't know if we're meant to or not, but at no point do I ever sympathize or empathize with Oliver Baines. Like, I just can't. He's a horrible, horrible human being, regardless of what he believes. I'm just going by his actions, and I cannot, you know, I, I can't forgive that. And I can't, well, possibly eventually forgive that, but I, it's always tainted by that. I can't ignore what he's done. And I, yeah, I cannot, I don't like him. I don't like him. <laughs> and I never I will. I don't either. I have to say this, it's going to sound so silly. Okay. I really love the video game Fallout 4 and there's this character in it named Deacon. And if you choose him as your companion for a while, you get to know him better and better. And there's this one point where, uh, you know, he likes to tell lies a lot and your character can respond in many different ways. But at some point he's like, yeah, I was totally lying about that, but Eventually, everyone is going to be trying to spoon feed you their patented form of BS. Ignore what they're saying and look at their actions. Look at what they're doing. Look at what they're asking you to do. And that's why I can't stand Oliver Baines. And I mean, that's uh, without getting political, without talking about specifics. That's one thing that I've been taught a lot is to, especially with certain politicians, don't believe what they're saying. Don't believe what's being put out in press releases and being told by their press people. Judge them by what they're doing. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Yeah. So well, that's, anyway. that's true. Just people as a whole. <laughs> Judge them by their actions Absolutely. and not their Absolutely. words. Absolutely. One thing I wanted to add to this storyline is I like how... Well, first of all, I don't really understand why he kidnaps Vasily because he's just a lieutenant. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but 
earlier in the book, Chakotay is is making is telling Baines that in history it shows that you know slaves would have never been freed if they didn't have the support of those who were non-slaves that you and in women's rights that men had to stand up and also show the support it can't just be the support of the people who are wanting to be free you need the support of those outside of that group to help support and fight the cause to make the change happen and so the fact that Vasily is kidnapped and he's a lieutenant. He has no power over anything. And I don't think, I'm not even sure why Baines kidnapped him because if he's trying to make a point to this lieutenant, I don't see what this lieutenant's going to do that's going to help change anything. It would have been more interesting to me if he had captured somebody like the Federation president or some you know, prominent admiral or somebody where he felt like I'm doing this because this is a person of power. And if I can convince this person of power that holograms are real and should be protected and should be freed, then I'm accomplishing my goal. But I don't see why this lieutenant is getting to help him go anywhere with anything. I just had a thought because there are more people than just Andropov that were replaced. Where did all these other people go? Are they all going through similar experiences on other holodecks? I wonder, too. I was like, wait, did I read something wrong? I thought there were other people, and then it seemed like they just disappeared. Yeah, and you never find out about them. There's never even a, you know, an afterthought sentence about how they found all these other people in holodecks and what they'd been through. Nothing about that. So where were they? Loose end, not tied off. <laughs> well, in, in this case, I like I... I said earlier, I've not read the next two novels. I have to assume that this gets picked up because the way this story ends is as far as Starfleet and the Federation knows or cares to concern themselves with because they drop it pretty quickly. Um, Oliver Baines apparently committed suicide and uh, that's that. They're like, oh, okay, that's all dealt with. But, but why? We learn at the end of the novel. Why, like, why don't they care? No, why did he commit suicide? Like, I, that to me wasn't all that clear either. Because he's a coward. He didn't want to be in jail. But to me, it's like, because we know that he didn't actually commit suicide. That was a hologram version yeah. of him that they used to somehow trick Starfleet. And as far as the why question goes, that's what I want Starfleet to yeah. be asking. Like... Oh, he killed himself. Cool. Problem solved. And like Admiral Montgomery, as much as he turns out not to be the villain, he's still a huge raging D.I.C.K. I do not like this guy because he does. He just doesn't care. He's like, oh, cool. You know, this uh, this Baines guy killed himself. Well, why did you do that? Oh, whatever. I don't care. It's done with. But of course, he's still alive and he's recruited at least Andropov and possibly more people and at the end, Andropov is like, what do you want me to do, sir? You know, he's kind of been recruited into this army of his, and that's where that story ends. So I've got to assume that that continues somehow. I don't care. I don't know. <laughs> right? I, I don't, don't care, care either. Just, why didn't he just die? I don't want to see this character again. Thank you. I looked at the Spirit Walk novels, and they're about Maquis, so I don't know if this gets picked up or not. <laughs> Yeah, like, I don't, is it just an unrelated B story like Bolanas? Or, like, I don't, I don't, or is it just never picked up again? I don't know. But, you know, which kind of leads me to another point I had, because, you know, the idea of holographic rights and all of this sort of thing, to me, it's kind of compelling. 
if you do it a different way. And I got really excited when um, they contact Picard and get data to come on their team. And I was really excited for the reason that Janeway initially gives data, which is that, you know, he had no rights at one point and Picard argued for his rights as a sentient being. So they want to use him to argue on behalf of their doctor for one and holograms as a whole. I was looking forward to that. I, I want to see, you know, a debate like in the measure of a man and, and instead what we get is data just accompanying them on their rescue missions to get, you know, seven and each and the doctor out of prison and then this big, huge, complicated op to take down this new Borg queen. Like, why even use Data if you're not going to use him the way you said you were going to, which is this, would be this really cool debate about the rights of holograms. I was really frustrated we didn't get that story. I totally agree. I felt, why bother to bring Data into this at all if this is all you're going to do with him? Don't do it! Don't do it! Don't do it! Just... You know, have your little op and go about your business. But if, to tease that story and then not do it, mm, 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 didn't like it. I was most disappointed when after that whole, you know, infiltrating Voyager happened. And I'm just like, wait, what? That's it? Now we're done with data? Are you kidding me? Absolutely. 100% agree. I saw this in the show notes and I thought, oh, I'm, got, I'm not the only one who felt the same way about this. The data role, I, so, you know, Picard shows up in the first book, then Picard shows up briefly in this book, and then data. And I feel like there's so many times where a Deep Space Nine or a Voyager book have to have a next generation character in there because I feel like the publisher and the writers or whoever feel like, oh, well, you know, people love the next generation. Let's get a character in there. And sometimes they are shoehorned in and doesn't really need to be there or whatever. And the fact that Data was there because of the Doctor, it was like, okay, this t makes total 100% sense. This should happen. Data should be in this book. And I'm really now invested in the whole hologram thing and, and Data being there to help the Doctor and prove that he is an individual and that he's a person or whatever and all these things. And then it just was gone and then he's just riding along in the car with everybody just like hey we're all hanging out and it was like it just fell short and this is what i'm getting at before it's like there's so many great ideas in these books and then it just is dropped or it's just quickly resolved and it's hollow and it's just like there's just so much opportunity and I'm like, Argh. like I love it and I hate it at the same time. Like I want to see the debrief when data goes back to the enterprise and Picard, tell me about your mission, Mr. Data. And it's like, well, we infiltrated the USS Voyager and rescued some crew members and then took down the Borg queen. So, you know, that's cool. Oh, but <laughs> why they could have just done that. <laughs> like, you know, it, it, nothing about it struck me as, you know, there are a couple moments where he's using the computer and analyzing data faster than anyone else can, I guess. But, you know, you want to use a character for the experience they have. And especially, and I'm just going to keep hammering this point, especially since they teased us with that story and said, this is why we're using data. I wanted to see that story. And it's just, oh, it's so frustrating. 
All right. It's okay. Get it all out, Dan. It's okay. Oh. It's a safe space. It's okay. a safe space. Tell us how you really feel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I don't want to. I don't want to uh, upset our non-explicit uh, reading on iTunes. <laughs> so maybe we'll move on. The last thing I guess is to come back to the Balana story and talk a bit about how that wrapped up. And I feel like I'm just ragging on this novel. I feel like I'm just, oh, and I, I kind of feel bad. But this is one of those instances where she meets up with her mother and I knew within like a paragraph, oh God, she's going to die, isn't she? And sure enough, we, we get this situation. Balana meets up with her in the forests on Boreth. And they end up fighting a mature Grickshack, this big, huge animal. And Mural is mortally wounded and in a very, I have to admit, emotional and well-written scene. Bolana has to, I can't remember the name of the Klingon ritual, but, but finish her mother off to give her an honorable death. As good as that scene was and as, as great as it was for that character, it's still just one of those things where I felt like they were ticking the box. Like, okay, yeah, this is what's got to happen. And uh, I and I wish I didn't feel that way because I honestly did feel the scene itself was well written. But it just was nagging in the back of my head that like, yep, going through the motions, this is what's going to happen. Balana's going to learn a lesson about it, what it means to be Klingon and accept part of her heritage <sighs> and I wish it didn't feel like that. I don't know. What are your guys' thoughts? I didn't on that? have that same reaction. And it doesn't matter to me really if I see that coming that, oh, she's probably going to die. But I can see where you would start thinking that because especially when, oh, I want to go and see my grandchild and I want to meet your husband and, you know, we're in this dangerous situation. It's like, of course, everything's lovey dovey and we want to go back and something's going to happen. But I think what I really loved about it is the scene you're talking about. It's emotional. To me, it didn't matter if it was predictable or not. It wasn't predictable to me that Balana then had to take the dagger or whatever and kill her mother. You know, she's dying and she's like, I'm not going to make it. You're going to have to do what you need to do. That ritual of, you know, send me to Stovacor and and she had to end her mother's life and honor her in that manner. And the, one of the last words her mother says, you know, as Balan is getting ready to do it, or Balana realizes, I truly am Klingon because I'm able to do this. And so I like that scene a lot. It's probably my favorite scene of the whole book, uh, just because I thought it was emotional. And it's something that is going to, it's something that Balana is going to carry with her forever. And so I, I liked it. Yeah, I... I again have mixed feelings about this, same as you, Dan. I I felt that from the beginning of her real story, once she finds out that her mother is alive, I thought, well, she's gonna go in there, she's gonna find her mother, something's gonna happen and her mother's gonna die, because heaven forbid we have a happy ending to this. And so everything that happened along the way was predictable. I agree that that final scene was extremely well written, but the minute she was injured, I thought, uh-oh, nope, she's got to have an honorable death. And so I knew that that's what Bolana would have to do, and I knew that Bolana would do it because it's Bolana, and she is a bad A. So <laughs> I um, <laughs> having it be predictable 
didn't lessen its effect for me because it was well, well written. I can't say words all of a sudden. But I just wish, why didn't you take that time and care with all the other stories, like Bruce said to begin with? And I think it was your idea, Bruce, that you thought you should, everything should have been a separate book. Every character should have gotten a book. Yeah, I'm not a writer, but I could be a publisher. Yeah. And an editor. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, and I, I see that as a really big opportunity. You don't necessarily have to do a full-length novel for each of these stories. You know, they could be like two, 200 pages each, and you have this nice matched set of all of these stories finishing up, you know, coming back for each of the Voyager crew members of the main cast. And that would have been so much more interesting and deep and satisfying, I feel, than just, let's just cram all of this into two books. And so I feel... Again, though I appreciated the story and I was interested in it, again, it just, in the end of it, it just rings a little bit hollow like everybody else, like everything else in this, and tying off all these loose ends. Again, like ticking a box. Yeah, and, and like I say, it's kind of unfortunate that I felt that way because it, it is well written and it's it's compelling and this is a character that I care about and I don't want to feel that while I'm reading it. I want to lose myself in the moment and the writing's good enough that I just about did. So, you know, there's that. Yeah. It was just a return to the stuff that I didn't like in the first half of the last novel, where it was just ticking these boxes, um, expanding on it more than we did there, of course, but still just kind of going through the motions and, and being predictable. Yeah. Very mixed feelings. That's, that's the best way to put it. So, um, I guess I'm going to throw it back to you guys. Is there anything that we haven't talked about with regards to this book that uh, we should be covering? Why? Yes. I think real quick, uh, I did enjoy Libby's character in this book. I liked her in the first book too. And I just want to throw mention of that. And she also had a love interest in Aiden Fletcher. Uh, He was assistant director of part of the, uh, Starfleet intelligence that they had a past relationship that was romantic, but not anymore, but yet they're still working together as boss and employee and as friends. And it didn't take that trope of some kind of weird love triangle or they're having fights or whatever. I mean, it was like a very respectful relationship between the two. And I liked those two characters together and what was established between them and how she would send messages to Harry of the things that she was finding out and secretly sending him messages. Of course, he doesn't know it's her. He doesn't know that she's doing intelligence work. So I kind of liked all of that. So it wasn't a big part of the storyline, but it was a nice touch to it. I really liked the Libby character in this book. Yeah, there's a lot of really good character work with the secondary people, other than, you know, the main villain (laughs) and the secondary villain. (laughs) But yeah, no, they're, they're, like those, a lot of those little moments I really appreciated as well. That's a good point. Yeah, the, the only thing about that is that she's using the codename Peregrine, right? And she exclaims, oh, a Peregrine, when they're on that date on that desert planet. You're telling me Harry couldn't make that connection. Are you freaking kidding me? No, he should have known from <laughs> the start that it was Libby. Because who else has talked about a peregrine recently. Duh. So what you're saying is Christy Golden treated the character of Harry Kim with just as little respect as the writers of the Voyager television series did. Again. 
Poor Dom Again, Mary. <laughs> I was I was so irritated by that because I thought there is no freaking way that Harry wouldn't figure that out. I mean, why else would she use that word? She wanted him to figure it out. I don't know, you know, but you have to think at the same time. I'm going to come in defense of Harry and the writer of this. If you think that your girlfriend is strictly a musician and in no way connected to Starfleet in any way of never showing any kind of interest or any connection to doing any type of intelligence work like that, it would really be a far stretch to think, gee, could that be Libby? Nah, you know, <laughs> it's just like, that would be like me finding out my wife works for the Secret Service right now. And I would be like, you know, she's like a CIA agent. I'd be like, mm, no, like, it was just hard to believe. Bruce, I have something to tell you. <laughs> I knew this was coming. <laughs> no, it's but, so predictable. Yeah. this. See, this is the thing, though. If she had used any other code name except for Peregrine, I would agree with that assessment. Yeah, but you got to think about a date. I mean, the date was probably hours long. And at one point she goes, oh, look, a peregrine. And he probably even forgot she even said that. And maybe he wasn't even paying attention. Come on. We're talking about guys on dates. We're not paying attention to everything a woman's saying. Bruce, <laughs> Bruce makes a very good point that as a guy. Yeah, <laughs> totally. See, Krista Golden. The most meaningful us. thing to her on the date. Harry didn't even notice it. <laughs> Men do better. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> I stand by my point. I think Harry would have figured it out. But again, Harry just gets the 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 what's the word I'm looking for here? The short end of the stick. I don't remember what the phrase is. Uh, short shrift something. <laughs> maybe Harry did figure it out and he just doesn't want to reveal that. Or yeah. maybe he's suspicious mm. and he's not you know, we, we don't know. Yeah, well, that's the thing. We don't know. I'll just have to make it up in my head, Canon, because we don't get enough in any of these stories <laughs> to really understand anyone's motivation completely. That's true. There's a lot we have to fill in, unfortunately. So on that note, I guess, uh, final thoughts and ratings for The Farther Shore. I don't I don't think I can elaborate anymore on every and the things that I've already said. I wanted this to be a better book than it was. I wanted better closure than what I got. And I don't think that it's because I had lofty expectations because I did read the first book, but that's the thing. The book gives you these lofty expectations and then doesn't pay them off. And that is extremely disappointing. So while I feel that there are, as Bruce has said, many great ideas in this book, that as a cohesive story, it really falls apart in this particular book and pretty much left me with a huh, feeling at the end. So one huh from no, Brandy. No, I wouldn't say one huh. I would say, I would say one and a half uh, on their deathbed morals waiting to go to Stovalcore. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, I pretty much have said, and it's like what Brandy's saying, there's so many great ideas that aren't fleshed up or aren't resolved or there isn't much detail. And I think my biggest complaint would be that I was looking back and Homecoming is the first book is 288 pages and 
A Further Shore is 304 pages. Now, most of the Star Trek novels that we get today are usually a little over 350 pages. So my point is that we could have added another 100 pages to Homecoming and another 70 to 100 pages to A Further Shore and really fleshed out some of these scenes and fleshed out some of these character moments and taken the moment to when they first arrived to earth, not resolve things so quickly, but maybe play those out a little longer into different scenes and, and give us some opportunity with data to do something for the doctor and have like maybe that little courtroom scene at Starfleet and headquarters and do something to that effect and just like really add a little more depth and meat to it. And I think this would have been a very outstanding two book series to end the Voyager arc of returning to earth and then assimilating to earth when they get here. (laughs) And I just really feel like this almost feels to me like this is the first pass and I would have loved the author, even to this day, if she could just go back and just do a little more to that, just take those ideas and really flesh them out a little more. I would really love these books. So as of right now, I would say that I give this book uh, 3.25 loopholes. <laughs> hmm. Oh, you're more generous than I was. Yeah, no, I I can't disagree with anything that's been said. I I there are a lot of interesting ideas in this book. There are so many times reading this that I went, Oh, cool. And then when we get to the end of that particular part, kind of go, Oh, like it just, everything kind of fizzles out. You know, there's, there's really neat ideas, really interesting ideas. I like the idea of flipping the narrative on someone to see what life as a hologram is like, but the ultimate payoff to that and the fact that it ends up just being kind of torture of a sort and you know he pledges himself to this guy I, I didn't I don't like that I don't like where that went um the idea of a complex villain with complex motivations but we don't really get that link between them and then she just turns into like a mustache twirling evil horrible borg queen that has people surrounding her calling her majesty just like ah oh, okay I I don't like it's just it it feels cartoonish and I don't really like it, which is hard for me to say. I am usually very easygoing on Star Trek novels. So sadly, I will have to give this one uh, two out of five um, unactivated but assimilated humans who are just kind of sitting around looking gray. <laughs> on that note. <laughs> yeah, this is kind of, in my opinion, a bit of a lackluster finish to the story. Which is unfortunate. I had kind of higher hopes for it, but uh, you know, we'll see where it goes. We'll we'll get to the remainder of the Christy Golden relaunch Voyager novels at some point. Uh, but until then, Brandy, where can our listeners find you on the internet? Well, you can find me many places. And by the way, if you need someone to read those additional novels, I am your gal. Because <laughs> this ha- this hasn't put me off Voyager novels. Don't get me wrong. You can find me on Twitter at Brandywine12. Brandy is with an I. 12 is the number. You can find me in the Babel Conference from time to time. I try to be more active in there than I have been recently uh, getting there. You can hear me from time to time on the 602 Club on the Trek FM Network. And just about every week on Warp 5 on the Trek FM Network, which is the Star Trek Enterprise podcast 
with me friends, Brandon Shamutella and Patrick Devlin. And I had a great time on that show. Enterprise is so underrated, guys. And uh, I also do a podcast with my wonderful husband, Dave, uh, called the Dark Corner Podcast at darkcornerpodcast.com. And we talk about stuff and things. And I swear a lot. And we look at everything from a slightly darker point of view. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure as always. Oh, I love getting reading assignments. <laughs> I love talking to you guys about it. Well, we'll definitely give you more reading assignments for sure. Absolutely. Oh, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Dang, man. I just really wanted this book to be like so good. It is good. It's just missing thing. It's just like, you know what it is? It's like, I feel like I got a Twinkie and the cream filling wasn't there. Hmm. That's so disappointing. Yeah. No, I, I, that makes sense. It's like you said, there's a lot of good ideas there. There's a lot of interesting stuff, but it's kind of in this weird puree of ideas that don't really pay off. I don't know. I, my metaphors are all totally mixed here, but yeah, it's just, it ultimately was disappointing. And I think I'm thinking of Twinkies also because my wife bought me chocolate Twinkies with peanut butter cream and I love chocolate and peanut butter together, but it's just, it's okay in the Twinkie. It's not all that great. I just wanted to mention that because it's on my mind. Yeah, you really can't, I mean, Reese is kind of the people you go to for chocolate and peanut butter. And outside that, it's always a little disappointing. Oh my gosh. I love Reese's stuff. Like every <laughs> Halloween and Easter or anything that's candy. My wife is buying me Reese's stuff all the time. <laughs> well, this podcast is not brought to you by Reese's, but you know, Reese's, if you do want to send us a crate of peanut butter cups, I'm not complaining about that. <laughs> anyway, actually they reached out to me once real quick story. So really? my, I think it was my boss. It was somebody, I th uh, or somebody at work or whatever, gave me uh, a bouquet of Reese's stuff. Like it was all the Reese's candies were on sticks, and it was like a bouquet and a vase. I took a picture and put it on Twitter, and then they wanted to use that for their website. Like, <laughs> oh no, it was employees that were reporting to me. They gave it to me for Boss's Day. That's what it was. And Reese's wanted to put it on their website, and they had to get my permission to use it. But then they never did. But anyway. Nice. <laughs> well, it's been fun talking about Reese's bouquets today, but it's not the only thing we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Literary Treks. Not to sound, you know, too high on oneself, but I was special when we were the only ship in the Delta Quadrant, and now we're just back, and it's not as great as you think. It almost feeds into that Voyager theme of it's not the destination that matters, it's the journey. Because, you know, once you get there, it's not as amazing as you think it was going to be. This reminds me so much of the rescue of Gilligan's Island. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Standard Orbit. Anson Mount, our new Captain Pike, was wandering around in the vendor's room and... I saw him, he passed by me within like inches and was walking around and looking at different different booths and stuff. I went up to his handler and I said, I, I have these bookmarks, I made these bookmarks, would it be okay if I gave him one? I don't want to bother him, I don't want to interrupt him. Cause... And she's like, yeah, and at that point he had turned around and I got to shake his hand, I gave him a bookmark. He is incredibly nice. Warp 5. 
He seems upset that she doesn't want to go to the movie. Now let's get back to the episode. Here. But he's, he's always like, upset offended. when she doesn't want to go because he yeah. wants date night with her. He does, and then and then Archer just swoops in and is like, "You're my date," and she's like, "What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're coming with me. We're going to the movies." God, that look on her face. She's like, "No, no." So check out all those shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. And if you like Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, well then... That's great. And if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and in most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. And if you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all of the details. Perks can include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, Reese Peanut Butter Cups, and more, except for the Reese Peanut Butter Cups. Those are available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. Again, not the Peanut Butter Cups. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd love to hear your thoughts about Reese's Fast Break candy bars, because they're really good, or your thoughts on today's show. And there are many ways you can do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel. B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. It really should. And if you'd like to send us an email, well, guess what? You can do that, too, by using the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select a Reese's Peanut Butter Cup and then select Literary Treks, and that will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. You can also find us on our Goodreads group, where we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books, as well as the currently reading section, so you know it's coming up for future shows, plus great conversations happening about all the books and comics and Reese's Pieces in the Star Trek literary universe. Just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group. We'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Chemutala, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network. And thank you guys so much for being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. Now, Bruce, when you're not traipsing through the jungles of Boreth in search of your long-lost mother, where can we find you? Well, you can find me dealing with my two halves and trying to figure out who I really am. Am I human or Klingon or both? You can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex, you can find me on the Star Wars Report podcast talking about Star Trek and Star Wars because the last episode I did I snuck in a lot of Star Trek stuff into the Star Wars podcast, but mainly, yes, it's about Star Wars on the Star Wars Report. And you can find me on and in and writing in the Babel Conference. So, Dan, 
when you're not getting your chocolate in somebody's peanut butter, where can people find you? Obviously, I'm getting my peanut butter in someone's chocolate. But when that's not happening, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. I also have a YouTube channel where I talk mostly about Star Trek. That's at YouTube.com slash Productions. And I have my website where I review Star Trek books at www.treklit.com. Well, thank you everyone so much for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.